0: On February 21, 1965, NYPD officer Thomas Hoy was stationed outside the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. He was there to keep an eye on Malcolm X's weekly meeting for his organization, Muslim Mosque Incorporated.
1: Malcolm was convinced, with good evidence, that operatives from the Nation of Islam were trying to kill him. The NYPD believed Malcolm was making it all up for publicity, but they sent Hoy to keep an eye on things, just in case.
0: As the meeting started, Hoy yawned and stretched. It was going to be a couple of long, boring hours. After an hour, at about 3 p.m., gunshots.
1: Officer Hoy opened the door. He was met with the crush of the 400-person audience all fighting to get outside at once. He strong-armed his way into the ballroom where Malcolm X was lying on the stage, dead.
0: There was a large group of people savagely beating a man on the ground. It was clear who the suspect was.
1: Officer Hoy waded through the tide of people and cuffed the man on the ground. Once he was taken into custody, he was identified as Talmadge Hayer, a member of the Nation of Islam.
0: But witnesses were saying they heard as many as 30 shots ring out. Heyer's gun couldn't have fired that many rounds. There was no way he was Malcolm's only killer. And the others were still out there. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe.
1: Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas.
0: And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our third and final installment on Malcolm X. In the past two weeks, we've discussed Malcolm's break with the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. This week, we'll follow the fallout from Malcolm's assassination on February 21, 1965.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information.
1: The moment the first shots were fired, the Audubon Ballroom fell into chaos. Two of the three gunmen disappeared into the crowd, but Talmadge Hayer was subdued and arrested by an NYPD officer on site.
0: Two other officers happened to be driving by and heard the gunshots. They helped control the crowd and take Hayer into custody.
1: Paramedics quickly arrived at the scene. They wheeled Malcolm X into an ambulance and rushed him to a nearby hospital, but his wounds were too severe. Malcolm was declared dead at 3.30 p.m. within half an hour of the attack.
0: The NYPD had done little to help Malcolm in life, but they quickly sprang to action to arrest the men who were responsible for his death. Within hours of the shooting, Hundreds of police officers were assigned to the Harlem area to begin the hunt for Malcolm's assassins. Initially, they had no idea who they were looking for. Their first job was tracking down people who were at the Audubon to get a description. But since the crowd had scattered in the immediate aftermath of Malcolm's death, this was no easy task.
1: Meanwhile, reporters from all over the world were trying to reach Elijah Muhammad for a comment. Would he take credit for orchestrating Malcolm's death, or would he deny any involvement?
0: Elijah remained tight-lipped. He had withdrawn to his spacious mansion in Chicago, protected by a mass of policemen and hundreds of Fruit of Islam enforcers.
1: Elijah knew he was in danger. Even though he had no direct role in the assassination, his barely-coded calls for violence were clear as day to anyone who'd heard them. Malcolm was dead at Elisha's behest, and Malcolm's followers were hungry for justice.
0: At 2.15 a.m. on February 23rd, less than two days after Malcolm was killed, the top floor of a four-story building in Harlem erupted in flames. It was the Nation of Islam's Mosque No. 7, where Malcolm used to preach when he was still a member.
1: The fire department was immediately called to the scene to fight the inferno, But before they even arrived on the scene, the fire had burst all the way through the roof with flames leaping over 30 feet in the air. As firemen poured water onto the flames, one of the building's walls collapsed.
0: Five firemen and one innocent bystander were injured and two fire trucks were ruined beyond repair. But they kept fighting.
1: After seven hours of effort, the fire was finally under control. The police were baffled they had assigned four patrolmen to guard the building.
0: But they hadn't stationed anyone on the rooftops.
1: The investigator searched a rooftop adjacent to the mosque and found an empty five-gallon gasoline can. The fire clearly was no accident. Someone must have climbed onto the roof of the building next door and hurled the makeshift firebomb into the mosque. The perpetrator wasn't identified, but it was most likely one of Malcolm's followers, hungry for revenge.
0: The police knew they had to act fast to catch Malcolm's killers or the entire city would fall into chaos. After the fire, multiple bomb threats were called into the funeral parlor where Malcolm's body was on display and the week leading up to his funeral was fraught with tension over the possibility of mass riots.
1: The NYPD's hostility towards Malcolm while he was alive was now making it harder for them to find out who was responsible for his death. Fifty detectives were on the case trying to interview the 400 audience members who were at the Audubon Ballroom when Malcolm was shot, but progress was slow. Malcolm's followers were justifiably wary of the police.
0: Talmadge Hayer was no help. He was locked up in the Bellevue Prison Hospital ward, awaiting surgery for the wounds he suffered in the shooting's aftermath. But he refused to tell investigators who his co-conspirators were.
1: On Friday, February 26th, five days after Malcolm's death, police arrested Nation of Islam member Norman 3X Butler. Like Heyer, Butler was part of the Fruit of Islam, the violent enforcement wing of the Nation of Islam, and was currently out on bail for suspected involvement in a shooting the month before.
0: The announcement of the arrest came on the same day that the Nation of Islam's annual convention, called Savior's Day, was scheduled to begin in Chicago. With Butler having been identified as a member of the NOI, Elijah's security team was on high alert for any retaliation from Malcolm's supporters.
1: Every single one of the 3,000 attendees was put through a rigorous security check. Chicago police said the level of scrutiny was comparable to when a president visited town.
0: Encircled by a security team, Elijah spoke for an hour and a half. He denied any involvement in Malcolm's death and challenged any would-be assassins seeking retribution for the assassination. Elijah shouted, If you seek to snuff out the life of Elijah Muhammad, you are inviting your own doom.
1: But once the dust had settled, Malcolm's supporters no longer seemed interested in a fight. Malcolm's funeral was held the very next day, and its somber nature stood in stark contrast to Elijah's fiery speech.
0: Over 22,000 people came to view Malcolm's body in the day before his funeral. The next morning, over 6,000 onlookers waited outside while the funeral services were held at New York's Faith Temple. Actor Ossie Davis, one of Malcolm's best friends, read aloud some of the many telegrams that had come in offering condolences, including messages from Martin Luther King Jr., the Nigerian ambassador, and the president of Ghana. Prominent
1: psychologist Dr. Kenneth B. Clark told Jet Magazine, quote, "'I believe that he was sincerely groping to find a place in the fight for civil rights on a level where he would be respected and understood fully.' It is tragic that he was cut down on the verge of achieving the position of respectability he sought.
0: Malcolm's burial was conducted in accordance with Orthodox Muslim tradition. With Malcolm at rest, his supporters gave up the fight against the NOI in the streets. They would have to find justice in the courtroom.
1: On March 10th, two and a half weeks after the assassination, the police announced they had arrested the third and final shooter, Thomas 15X Johnson. Johnson was also an NOI enforcer, and he had been indicted in the same shooting as Norman 3X Butler the previous January. There was no concrete evidence linking either Johnson or Butler to the crime, but there were several eyewitnesses claiming they'd seen the man at the Audubon that afternoon.
0: While the government was building its case, Malcolm's organizations were falling apart. Malcolm's death had created severe paranoia within both the Organization for Afro-American Unity and Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Infighting within the group's leadership destabilized things even further.
1: Malcolm's wife Betty and sister Ella were entangled in a dispute over Malcolm's papers, which included unpublished articles and speeches. Betty wanted to destroy them, while Ella preferred to preserve them. Eventually, Ella came out on top and sold some of Malcolm's letters, drafts, and documents to
0: a small publishing company. This victory came at the cost of Malcolm's two organizations, which disbanded due to the chaos over who was in charge. With Malcolm dead and his life's work in shambles, it seemed as if Elijah had successfully defeated him.
1: But Elijah was unable to enjoy his success. His fiery performance at Savior's Day sapped his strength, and he began to struggle with a severe diabetes crisis. Even though he was on the verge of a diabetic coma, he was too afraid to go to the hospital where he'd be too vulnerable to attack from Malcolm's followers. He eventually recovered, but by the time he had regained his strength, another crisis emerged.
0: On August eleventh, 1965, California Highway Police Officer Lee Manikas was patrolling near Los Angeles's Watts neighborhood when a man in a pickup truck pulled up beside him. The man alerted Officer Manikas to a 1955 Buick ahead of them that was driving erratically. Manikas turned on his siren and pulled the Buick over.
1: A 21-year-old black man named Marquette Fry rolled down the driver's side window. Officer Manikas could immediately tell he was drunk. He asked Fry to exit the vehicle and perform a sobriety test.
0: By then, a crowd began to gather to see what the commotion was. But there was nothing to worry about. Fry was fully cooperating with the tests, and his mood was light in spite of the circumstances.
1: But the mood soured when Manikas told Fry that he had failed the sobriety tests and he would have to arrest him. Fry told his brother, who had been in the car, to run and get their mother so she could claim the car before it was towed.
0: Meanwhile, the crowd was growing. Officer Manikas suddenly felt nervous, He decided to call his partner to help control the situation.
1: When Fry's mother arrived at the scene, she scolded her son for being drunk. Up to that point, Fry had been upbeat, but he suddenly became surly and uncooperative. When the backup officers arrived, even more onlookers circled around. Fry tried to take advantage of the chaos and disappear into the crowd, but one of the backup officers grabbed him.
0: Another officer tried to hit Fry in the arm with his baton, but missed and hit Fry in the head. Fry's mother and brother were furious and tried to wrestle Fry out of the officer's grip.
1: The crowd surrounding them now numbered close to 1,000 people. Manikas and his partner put Fry and his family into their squad car and left the scene, while their backup tried to get the crowd to disperse.
0: The dam burst when one of the backup officers arrested a woman he claimed had spit on him. As the officers sped away, people threw bottles and other items at the squad cars. The massive crowd broke off into smaller groups, furious at what they believed was a clear case of police brutality.
1: The scene was reminiscent of the 1957 Hinton Johnson incident, when Malcolm galvanized Harlem's black community to ensure that a man who was brutally beaten by the police received proper treatment.
0: But now, Malcolm was dead, and there was nobody to bring order to the chaos, nobody to give a voice to the voiceless.
1: That night, over 7,000 people took to the streets around 75 people, including 13 police officers, were injured as rioters smashed store windows and burned buildings along Avalon Boulevard.
0: The violence only grew from there. An innocent bystander was killed in a shootout between rioters and police, and a firefighter was killed when the wall of a burning building collapsed on him. With the situation spiraling out of control, 13,900 National Guardsmen were deployed in Watts, alongside an additional 2,000 LAPD officers and sheriff's deputies. As you can hear in this clip, the National Guard responded as if the city were a war front. We're the first company going in. We're the first people going in. Set up your perimeter and set up a buddy system. I want no man at any time alone. Right. If we get out of those trucks, I want fixed bayonets that we dismount.
1: The riots had a profound effect on Martin Luther King Jr. whose steadfast belief in nonviolent protest was starting to be shaken. As the riots dragged into their sixth day, he knew he had to do something. But his voice wasn't loud enough to pierce the fog of violence.
0: Before Malcolm died, he and MLK had begun the early stages of working together to achieve civil rights reform. With Malcolm's softening stance on working with white people, the two were starting to find common ground.
1: With Malcolm now gone, MLK had no choice but to turn to Elijah Muhammad for support. He asked Elijah to issue a joint public statement condemning the violence in Watts, but Elijah refused.
0: Previously, MLK had declined Elijah's requests to appear at Savior's Day events, and now Elijah wanted payback. As far as Elijah saw it, the Watts Riots were a good thing. They were a sign that his prophecy predicting the American government would fall by 1970 was coming true.
1: Even without Elijah, MLK's call for peace was heard. The Watts Riots ended after six days. In total, 34 people lost their lives, 1,032 were injured, and 3,500 were arrested. 200 buildings were destroyed, with 600 more severely damaged.
0: The riots convinced MLK to finally have a sit-down meeting with Elijah on February 23, 1966. The two men talked for an hour and planned to meet again soon. This was an indisputable victory for Elijah and the NOI, who now had the upper hand over MLK's civil rights activists.
1: But Malcolm's ghost still haunted them. As Elijah and MLK's meeting was taking place, so was the trial of Malcolm's assassins. Coming up, we'll explore whether Malcolm could overcome Elijah from beyond the grave or if his killers would go unpunished.
0: Now back to the story.
1: After almost a year of gathering evidence and eyewitness testimony, the trial of Malcolm X's three alleged assassins finally began on January 21, 1966.
0: Talmadge Hayer's participation in the killing was undisputed. He openly confessed to planning and participating in Malcolm's assassination. But it was more complicated when it came to Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson.
1: When Hayer took the stand, he claimed Butler and Johnson had nothing to do with the assassination. However, when the prosecutors pressed him to name his true co-conspirators, he refused.
0: The evidence placing Butler and Johnson at the crime scene was shaky at best. Seven eyewitnesses testified that they'd seen Butler and Johnson at the Audubon Ballroom on the day of the shooting. Butler owned a tweed jacket that fit the description of a coat one of the assassins was wearing, and Johnson had expertise with shotguns.
1: The testimony of the seven eyewitnesses placing Butler and Johnson at the scene was full of contradictions. The defense also pointed out that both Johnson and Butler were well-known NOI enforcers. Malcolm's bodyguards would have recognized them and wouldn't have let either man inside the building. Furthermore, both men had multiple eyewitnesses of their own to back up their testimonies that they had been at home during Malcolm's murder.
0: The testimony of NYPD officer Gilbert Henry cast further doubt on the prosecution's case. On the day of the assassination, Henry and his partner had been stationed at the ballroom along with Officer Hoy. While Hoy was placed directly outside the auditorium, Henry and his partner were stationed in the Audubon's Rose Room, a smaller space at a distance from where Malcolm's meeting was being held. Their superiors gave them walkie-talkies to call for backup in case anything happened.
1: When the shooting started, Henry called it in on the walkie-talkie. There was no response. He ran to the main auditorium where Officer Hoy had already taken Hayer into custody, but there were no other officers on the scene, despite his calls for backup.
0: Another witness testified that additional police didn't arrive for another 15 minutes. When a dozen officers finally strolled into the ballroom, he said they treated it less like an active murder scene and more like a casual patrol in the park.
1: The NYPD was no help in preventing Malcolm's death before it happened, and the behavior of its officers in the immediate aftermath suggests they weren't all that interested in catching his killers either. Compounded with the lack of evidence against Butler and Johnson, it was easy to argue that the police were more interested in securing a quick conviction than getting to the truth of the matter.
0: During the lead up to the trial, Benjamin Goodman, who had been backstage, repeatedly told the detectives that Butler and Johnson hadn't been at the ballroom that day. But they weren't interested in what he had to say. Months later, Goodman was summoned again for questioning by the district attorney. Once again, he insisted that neither Butler nor Johnson were at the Audubon. The assistant DA threatened Goodman with jail time if he didn't say that he had seen them participate in the shooting.
1: The prosecutors didn't follow through on that threat, but Goodman wasn't called to testify at the trial. The threats the assistant DA levied against Goodman cast doubt on the reliability of the seven eyewitnesses who did claim they'd seen Butler and Johnson.
0: The trial ended on March 11, 1966. Hayer, Butler, and Johnson were all found guilty of murdering Malcolm. They were sentenced to 20 years to life in prison.
1: Elijah and other high-ranking Nation of Islam members escaped implication in Malcolm's assassination. But Elijah would continue to be haunted by Malcolm's looming shadow in the next few years.
0: Even in death... Malcolm was much more popular than Elijah. Malcolm's autobiography was released in October 1965, only a few days before Elijah's first book, Message to the Black Man in America. Within a year, Malcolm's book had sold over 1,000 times as many copies as Elijah's.
1: Elijah resented Malcolm's elevation to martyrdom in the black community. 1968's Savior's Day fell on the third anniversary of Malcolm's death and Elijah didn't mince his words. He called Malcolm, quote, a wicked hypocrite. He did not die an unjust and unrighteous death.
0: A few months later, Elijah had similarly harsh words for Martin Luther King Jr. After their initial meeting in 1966, Elijah grew angry with King's push for integration in housing, jobs, and the government. Three days after MLK's assassination in April 1968, high-ranking NOI minister Louis Farrakhan said, Martin Luther King died because he had no vision. He was a brother, and I'm not against him. But the Bible told him the white man is our enemy— I don't get mad at a white man because of what he does, because I know it is his nature to be unrighteous. There was no need for Dr. King to die if he had a vision."
1: Despite the NOI's bitterness, their message was reaching more people than ever before. Some radio stations were airing Elijah's speeches six times a week, and the NOI began to bleed into popular culture.
0: In 1969, The Temptations released a song called Message from a Black Man in reference to the title of Elijah's book. James Brown ditched his signature pompadour hairstyle and released a song called Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, a sure sign that the NOI's Black Pride message was catching on.
1: The NOI was reaching unprecedented heights in power and prestige, But Elijah and his ministers were still obsessed with discrediting Malcolm, and a crime against a powerful member of the NOI allowed them to put one of Malcolm's most prominent followers in the crosshairs.
0: On February 4, 1969, Raymond Sharif, the NOI's chief of security, was at home when three gunmen forced their way inside. The gunmen left Sharif unharmed, but they stole jewelry, business papers, and $23,000 in cash from his safe.
1: A few weeks later at the annual Savior's Day convention, Sharif complained that, quote, Malcolm was an enemy to us. He was an enemy to our cause. We don't like him. Our enemies are those who are sympathetic to Malcolm's cause.
0: Sharif's main suspect for the break-in was one of Malcolm's former chief bodyguards Charles 37X Morris, otherwise known as Charles Kenyatta. After Malcolm's death, Kenyatta had established a group called the Mau Mau Society, carrying on Malcolm's legacy by focusing on ending crime and drug use.
1: Kenyatta was a prominent activist, and he had been accompanied to Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral by the mayor of New York. It could be that the NOI was wary of his growing stature and wanted to take Kenyatta down a peg by blaming his group for the robbery.
0: It's also possible that Sharif was on the right track when he blamed Kenyatta. While the Mau Mau Society was focused on humanitarian efforts, it was also suspected of illegal activities such as extortion and robbery. Maybe Kenyatta saw an opportunity to get back at the NOI by going after Sharif.
1: On June 7, 1969, Kenyatta was walking down Valentine Avenue in New York when gunmen shot him in his left arm and the side of his chest. As paramedics tended to his wounds, Kenyatta mumbled, the black Muslims are out to get me.
0: Even years after the assassination, bad blood still existed between the NOI and Malcolm X's followers. But as both sides were about to find out, their enmity might have been misplaced.
1: On the night of March 8, 1971, almost everyone in America was tuned into their TV or radio.
0: He's always talking about he's gonna come out smoking. Well, you tell Joe he can come out smoking cause I ain't gonna be joking. I'll be pecking and a poking,
1: pouring water on his smoking. This might shock and amaze you, but I will retire Joe frame. Muhammad Ali was set to box Joe Frazier in what was being billed as the fight of the century.
0: It was also the perfect cover for a daring burglary. That night, an activist group called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI planned to break into a small FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania to look for proof that the Bureau was spying on political dissidents. The eight activists knew everyone, including police officers, would be watching or listening to the fight, and they hoped the buzz from TVs and radios would cover up the sounds of the break-in.
1: The plan got off to a rocky start. Activist Ken Forsyth was in charge of picking the lock to the office door. He had practiced tirelessly on the lock he thought was in place, but when he arrived, he found out that the lock had been switched.
0: Forsyth went back to their home base for more tools and returned to the FBI office just before the fight started. As he went to work, he heard the sweetest sound imaginable.
1: The break-in went off without a hitch. In the days after the incident, residents who lived in the building told investigators they hadn't heard a thing.
0: The activists stole over 1,000 classified documents from the FBI office, many of them detailing the COINTELPRO operation, which was aimed at monitoring and disrupting American political operations.
1: Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam were among COINTELPRO's targets. The FBI had been keeping files on Malcolm starting in 1953 when he began his rapid ascent through the NOI's ranks. After Malcolm's initial 90-day suspension from the NOI, the FBI made the utmost effort to ensure the suspension became permanent.
0: Their main strategy was an overwhelming propaganda campaign in which they sent bogus stories to mainstream and African-American-oriented media, exaggerating the rift between Malcolm and Elijah. They even planted fake stories in the NOI's official newsletter, Muhammad Speaks.
1: One article sent to Muhammad Speaks just a month before Malcolm permanently left the organization stated that Malcolm, quote, has not taken this disciplinary action gracefully. He evidently feels that Elijah Muhammad is in his declining years and he is slipping. It would not surprise anyone at all familiar with the works of the NOI to see Little summarily expelled from this organization if he continues to buck the orders and wishes of Elijah Muhammad.
0: Those in the know at the NOI could tell the article was fake. The giveaway was that it referred to Malcolm by his given last name, Little, which he discarded in favor of the letter X when he joined the NOI. But the article did alarm the NOI's rank and file and stir up resentment towards Malcolm.
1: When Malcolm did leave the NOI, the wedge between him and Elijah didn't need to be driven any deeper. The decision to kill Malcolm was outside of the FBI's control, but the FBI didn't do anything to prevent Malcolm's death. In fact, they encouraged it.
0: John Ali, One of Malcolm's closest confidants while he was in the NOI, and later one of his most powerful enemies, was actually an FBI informant the entire time he was a member of the Nation of Islam. After Elijah ordered Malcolm's death, the FBI would monitor Malcolm's location and pass it along to John Ali. This is how NOI death squads seemed to know Malcolm's every move.
1: The COINTELPRO profiles also revealed that undercover agents had penetrated Malcolm's inner circle. His personal bodyguard, Gene Roberts, was an undercover NYPD detective.
0: Strangely enough, this ended up working out in Malcolm's favor. As an undercover detective, Roberts carried a gun even after Malcolm ordered his guards to stop carrying weapons— He used that gun to subdue Talmadge Heyer after the assassination. Roberts then rushed to Malcolm's side to try and save him.
1: Unfortunately, the same can't be said for the FBI. While the agency didn't directly kill Malcolm, it did actively encourage violence against him and pass along information about Malcolm's whereabouts to NOI members who had already made several attempts to kill him.
0: And now, The American public knew about it. Once the COINTELPRO files were released to the press, the FBI officially dismantled the program, but the damage was done. The revelation sparked a movement to reopen the investigation into Malcolm's assassination. This movement would receive help from an incredibly unlikely source, Talmadge Hare.
1: Coming up, new suspects will emerge in the decades-old case of Malcolm X's assassination. Now, back to the story.
0: Elijah Muhammad died of heart failure on February 25th, 1975, almost 10 years to the day of Malcolm X's assassination. He died two days before the National Savior's Day convention and hadn't named an official heir to assume leadership of the Nation of Islam.
1: Elijah's family and select ministers decided that Elijah's son, Wallace, would be anointed as the NOI's new leader. But not everyone was happy with the decision.
0: Louis Farrakhan, who had assumed Malcolm's position at the Harlem Mosque and then actively encouraged Malcolm's murder felt he was more deserving than Wallace. Wallace tried to smooth things over by giving Farrakhan a raise and assigning him leadership of the illustrious Chicago Mosque, but it wasn't enough.
1: Almost immediately after taking control of the NOI, Wallace began to break with many of Elijah's policies. He changed the organization's name to the American Society of Muslims. In a speech the next July, he encouraged whites to join the organization. He also moved closer to Orthodox Islam, dismissing Elijah's religious views as a hodgepodge of Islam, Christianity, and Freemasonry.
0: These changes were too much for Farrakhan to bear. He officially broke from Wallace in 1978 and in 1981 started a new organization he claimed was the true Nation of Islam. It was within the chaos of this power struggle that the truth of Malcolm's assassination finally came to light.
1: In 1977, Talmadge Hayer called William Kunstler, the attorney in charge of Malcolm's case. He wanted to talk.
0: After the COINTELPRO papers were released, the Congressional Black Caucus called for an investigation into Malcolm's death by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. However, there was still no evidence that anyone other than the men who had been convicted was responsible for pulling the trigger.
1: But there was hope that Hayer could provide new evidence. After 10 years in prison, he was ready to help exonerate Thomas Johnson and Norman Butler and put his real co-conspirators behind bars.
0: Hayer provided a written affidavit on February 25, 1978. He said he was recruited by NOI members named Benjamin Thomas and Leon Davis. They'd heard word that Malcolm X was to be killed, but neither of them were especially violent men. Hayer, on the other hand, had a criminal record and had been arrested in 1963 for stealing guns. He was also one of Elijah's most fervent supporters and was eager to prove it.
1: But even though Hayer knew his way around a gun, he wasn't a killer. The three men needed real muscle. That's where William Bradley came in. He had never been convicted of any major crimes, but he was known as a powerful enforcer and possibly even a killer.
0: Wilbur McKinley was the final recruit. He had been Hayer's accomplice in the 1963 gun robbery, so Hayer knew he could be trusted.
1: The morning of February 21, 1965, the five men piled into McKinley's blue Cadillac and headed to New York. They parked a few blocks from the Audubon on a street facing the George Washington Bridge so they could make a clean getaway. Heyer was armed with a 45 automatic pistol. Davis had a Luger and Bradley carried a shotgun.
0: Heyer and Davis sat in the front row with Bradley and Thomas sitting right behind them. McKinley was a few rows back. His job was to create a commotion by accusing someone of pickpocketing him and then throw the smoke bomb.
1: After the shooting, Thomas, Davis, Bradley, and McKinley melted into the crowd and presumably made their escape in McKinley's car. Of course, Heyer wasn't so lucky.
0: And his bad luck continued. Heyer's new affidavit had no effect. Despite public interest in a new trial, the only evidence against the men Hayer named was his word, and none of them were coming forth to admit guilt.
1: After many failed parole petitions, the men who'd been convicted alongside Hayer, Johnson, and Butler were eventually let out on parole in the mid-1980s. All three embraced more orthodox forms of Islam while in prison, and upon release, none of them returned to the NOI.
0: Louis Farrakhan eventually won the power struggle between Wallace Muhammad and himself. His new NOI overtook the organization Wallace had inherited from Elijah, and Farrakhan remains the NOI's leader to this day.
1: While it doesn't boast the same membership as it did in Elijah's heyday, Farrakhan's NOI is still a powerful force in the black community, but its legacy is complicated and controversial.
0: Under Farrakhan's leadership, the NOI has invested in underprivileged communities in America and across the globe. He was the keynote speaker at the 1995 Million Man March in Washington, D.C., a major moment in the ongoing battle for civil rights.
1: But the NOI's questionable views on race and religion remain as well. According to the Anti-Defamation League, Farrakhan, quote, Repeatedly alleged that the Jewish people were responsible for the slave trade and that they conspired to control the government, the media, Hollywood, and various black individuals and organizations to this day, end quote. The backlash from the Jewish community was immediate. Officials of several leading Jewish groups liken the reconciliation offer from the Nation of Islam leader to an olive branch without any leaves. Executive Director Matthew Brooks of the National Jewish Coalition says talk is cheap. We would like to see some concrete steps that uh, Minister Farrakhan takes. Uh, in terms of his associations with uh, people like the Iranians and people like Muammar Gaddafi, uh, as well as a retraction of some of his virulent anti-Semitic comments that he's made in the past. In an interview on the CBS program 60 Minutes, Farrakhan said he doesn't hate Jews and is willing to visit rabbis and speak with Jewish scholars. James Limbach, Washington.
0: Further clouding the NOI is Farrakhan's 2010 embracement of Dianetics, the teachings of Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Farrakhan denies being a Scientologist, although he encourages NOI members to undergo auditing by the Church of Scientology.
1: Throughout all the controversy, Elijah Muhammad's reputation and legacy have largely remained intact. Although it is recognized that Elijah played a significant role in Malcolm's death, his positive contributions to the black community are also undeniable. Under Elijah's leadership, the NOI provided a stable path for wayward youths and was an unapologetically radical voice in the civil rights movement. Without Elijah's guidance, Malcolm X might never have grown into the powerful icon that we remember him as today.
0: But without Elijah, Malcolm wouldn't have met a violent, premature end either. Today, the Audubon Ballroom is now named the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center. The museum features important moments from Malcolm's life and times.
1: It's impossible not to think about what Malcolm could have accomplished if he hadn't been killed that day. As we discussed earlier, his presence was clearly missed during the Watts riots. If his burgeoning partnership with MLK had materialized, how different would American society look today?
0: Before he died, Malcolm's petition to have the United Nations examine the United States government for human rights violations of Black people throughout history was gaining considerable support from foreign governments, especially in Africa. But when he died, nobody continued the effort.
1: If Malcolm had lived and his petition was successful, it could have been a course-altering moment in American history. The civil rights movement was reaching its crest, and support from the UN and international governments might have meant swifter action towards equality.
0: The mounting support for Malcolm's UN petition means it's possible the atmosphere of racial tension might have changed before the Watts riots occurred in August, 1965. One of the reasons L.A.'s black community was so tense at the time of the riots was the passage of Proposition 14 in November 1964, which overturned a bill that prevented landlords from discriminating against minorities.
1: Prop 14 was eventually declared unconstitutional in 1967, but if Malcolm had been able to rally the support of the U.N., perhaps discrimination would have been outlawed sooner. The tension that led to the Watts riots would have been dispelled.
0: Or, if the riots still occurred, Malcolm probably would have joined his voice with MLK in the aftermath. Although Malcolm never abandoned his militant leanings, he also supported Black self-reliance. He most likely wouldn't have been happy to see so many Black-owned businesses destroyed in the violence.
1: Certainly, Malcolm would have continued to be a powerful voice in the Civil Rights Movement. If he and MLK had joined forces, perhaps Elijah would have been convinced to put his grudge aside and join his voice with theirs. Maybe the three men could have found common ground uniting and strengthening the Civil Rights Movement.
0: If Malcolm had lived longer, he might have become the spearhead of the National Civil Rights Movement after MLK's assassination. His voice was strong, and he might have been able to pierce the fog of racism that still plagues our country today. What would Malcolm have said after the 1991 Rodney King beating? Would the ensuing riots have happened at all? How might he have weighed in on the O.J. Simpson trial?
1: If Malcolm's U.N. petition forced the United States to be more accountable for the poor treatment of black citizens, maybe many of history's police brutality incidents wouldn't have happened, or at least the perpetrators would have faced graver consequences.
0: In the end, it's all just wishful thinking. Malcolm's assassination wasn't a one-off event by a lone actor like so many other famous assassinations. It was a coordinated, unstoppable effort that had been in motion for a long time before February 21, 1965. If Malcolm hadn't been killed that day, it wouldn't have been long until another NOI member succeeded.
1: Malcolm knew that his actions would lead to an early grave, but for him, the risk was worth it if he could help others. He refused to be silenced, even if it meant putting his life on the line.
0: The words of Malcolm's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, in 2015 perfectly capture what Malcolm accomplished in his short life. He was just a very, very young man, and he gave all that he possibly could to this country, to his people, and I hope that we make sure that it was not in vain. During the interview Malcolm gave to journalist Gordon Parks the day before his death, he remarked, quote, It's a time for martyrs now. And if I'm to be one, it will be in the cause of brotherhood. That's the only thing that can save this country. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We hope you enjoyed our series on the assassination of Malcolm X.
1: You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Alex Benedin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.